Thanks for joining us today. I'm Rob Parker, lead pastor at The Plant Church. Our vision is to know Christ and make him known. If you are interested in getting connected or if we can help you in any way, email us at info at theplantchurch.org. Hey, good morning, church family. My name is Pastor Mitch. Welcome to our online service. We're so glad that you were able to join us. For those of you at home who have been watching our series, and for those of you who haven't, let me catch you up really quickly. We've been talking about the armor of God. You see, Paul was a prisoner, a prisoner of God in Rome, waiting for trial. And he was next to a Roman soldier, most likely, who was in charge of watching him and keeping him accountable and making sure that he got to trial on time. And while Paul's writing to the churches to encourage them, he's writing to a church in Ephesus, telling them to take heart, to put on the full armor of God, most likely watching the Roman soldier next to him and writing down different parallels in the spiritual war that we fight compared to the war that is fought with the physical. He instructs us that our our war is not against flesh and blood, but the spiritual realm. Our series opener started with knowing your enemy. And it was amazing. It was amazing to know the tactics of the enemy. It was amazing to find out what kind of tools we have to fight Satan as we fight the spiritual war. The week after that, we talked about wearing the belt of truth and how important it is to buckle around us truth, how it protects our vital organs. Then we talked about the breastplate of righteousness. Do you know what stuck out to me about that? It's the idea that Roman soldiers used to have to purchase their breastplate. Wow, I'm so glad today when we get our breastplate of righteousness, it's not something that we can earn, it's not something that we can buy, but it's something that is freely given to us that God would give us the breastplate of righteousness. And then we talked about wearing the shoes of peace. The next part of that scripture in Ephesians 6 talks about wearing the shoes of peace. When I'm watching a movie and there's a bully, the bully will often pick on their victim and in the biggest display of disrespect, the bully will say, give me your shoes. I hate that, I hate that. It's so disrespectful for the victim and usually the victim takes their shoes off and just kind of drops their shoes at the bully's feet. And that's exactly what Satan does to us. Satan harasses us, tries to cause depression in us or give us anxiety or fill us with fear. And when we surrender to those basic instincts, when we want to be anxious and overthink, when we want to lose our peace, it's like we're handing over our shoes to the enemy. It's like we're dropping our shoes of peace to the bully who would harass us. No, Paul says instead to put on the full armor of God, to wear the shoes of peace, to dig in, and to make sure that our path is led with peace. And then last week we talked about the shield of faith. What was cool about that is the shield was dipped in water ahead of time by Roman soldiers before they went into battle. And when they were faced against the enemy, if they were to shoot flaming arrows at the shield of faith, the arrows would be extinguished because they were soaked in water. The parallel for that, oftentimes in the Bible, the Holy Spirit is compared to water, or water is used to represent the Holy Spirit, that when we are dipped in the Holy Spirit, when we are filled with him, when we are soaked in the Holy Spirit, we can extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. Well, this week we're talking about the helmet of salvation. Paul says to put on the helmet of salvation. And you know, this is not the first time in the Bible that we see the phrase helmet of salvation. There's a book in the Bible called Isaiah, where God speaks through the prophet a couple hundred years before Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. 
and God is upset. He's looking at the people of Israel and he's deeming them worthy of wrath. He says that they are quick to shed blood and that they are known for their violence and that they ignore calls for justice. So in response, God says he's going to put on his breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. That's the first time we see it, the helmet of salvation, is when God's putting it on to go into battle. You know, if you're like me, you often fall into this uh, pattern as a Christian. When you see Israel is being blessed, you compare Israel to your country or to your church or to your family. I do that all the time. I see Israel being blessed because they did this, this, and that. And I wonder, hmm, is my country doing that? Are we doing this, this, and that? And when God has judgment and he has wrath in stored for the people of Israel, I wonder if we check off the same boxes. Are we quick to shed blood? Are we known for our violence? Have we ignored calls for justice? Because of my job, I am often on Instagram. And one of the things I very much enjoy using on Instagram or looking at on Instagram are maps. You heard me correctly, M-A-P-S, maps. I love looking at maps on Instagram. Sometimes there's a world map that shows you where Nobel Peace Prize winners are like where they live in the world. Sometimes there's a map that shows you the Japanese diaspora, where Japanese people migrate to from Japan to other parts of the world. A map that constantly shows up on my newsfeed is a black and white world map that shows how many countries the United States has bombed since World War II. And if that country's been bombed, it's colored in. And there's a lot of color on that map. Are we known for our violence? This week, thinking about the Helmet of Salvation, thinking about if we're known for our violence, I've just been listening to music differently. I've been observing what kind of TV shows and movies get elevated to the top of our YouTube channels or our box office hits. Personally, I love watching the NFL. I love watching Conor McGregor talk a mean game and then either having to back it up by fighting really hard or getting spanked in his next bout. And I've even been examining the way that you and I use the English language. I don't think English is a violent language, but I think the way that the United States of America uses English might be kind of violent. For example, my friend did really well on something recently, and I told him he killed it. When I want to tell someone to do well on an exam or that they did really good on an exam, I say that they murdered it. I have one friend who, when he microwaves something, he says he's going to nuke it or that he nuked it. And you might not be guilty of that, but I know the way that we use English when we want to go and break a leg is oftentimes viewed as violent. A lot of the times our foreign policy solutions are quick to shed blood. Well, this isn't the only thing that Israel was guilty of. They were also guilty of ignoring calls for justice. And you and I both live in 2020. You know where this is going. This year, louder than ever, the African-American community has been calling for justice. And I ask myself, is the United States ignoring that call? An argument I hear often is that I've never owned a slave, and you've never owned a slave, and you've never been a slave. And I'm kind of distraught by how many times I've heard that argument, because it does make sense. But is it a way to ignore the calls of justice that are happening in this country? When we see our African-American brothers and sisters hurting and asking us to relate and to have compassion, 
Are we empathetic? Or do we ignore them with certain facts? Do we ignore their cause with justification? I have a friend who's a German citizen, and his grandfather most likely was a Nazi. And he's never been a Nazi, and he doesn't know any Nazis. But he represents his generation of Germans with a humble attitude that's super repentant, that heard the cause for justice by the Jewish community and acted on them. Do we hear calls of justice from the African-American community or the Native American community or the Latino American community and Asian American community? And do we heed them? Do we act on them? Or do we ignore them and use types of logic to wish them away? Now, why am I bringing any of this up? Well, Isaiah 59 has a certain checklist where God's about to go into battle. He's about to unleash part of his wrath on Israel for failing to heed these calls for justice, for being known for their violence. And he suits up by wearing the breastplate of righteousness and a helmet of salvation. This is incredible. Because whether you agree that our country is deserving of wrath or whether you think that we match up with Israel, you could agree or not. What's important is to know that we naturally, as a collective and as an individual, deserve God's wrath. Before knowing God, we were destined to suffer under his judgment and his punishment. But God had a solution. God had a solution before the beginning of time. His solution was to come down in the form of a man, Jesus, to fulfill prophecies that no man could fulfill, prophecies outside of man's control, involving his birth and involving the state of his death, living a perfect life you and I should have lived and suffering the wrath and judgment of God that was meant for you and I. Now, when he died on the cross, we got this cool gift called salvation. In fact, when Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, he's letting them know that we were once dead in our transgressions and sins. But because of his great love for us, we are now alive in Christ. We now have salvation. By grace, we are saved from the wrath that he had. When God was going into battle with a helmet of salvation, he was going against us. Now, because of his death, we, check this out, inherit that helmet of salvation. Again, the beginning part of Ephesians talks about how you and I are chosen, how you and I have been adopted to be a part of the family of God. Other parts of the Bible talk about that too, that we are now offspring, engrafted into the family. So what is the point I'm trying to make? God wore this helmet into battle. And because he died for us, the helmet of salvation is a family heirloom. Much like when a parental figure passes away and leaves to their offspring in their will possessions, we have inherited the helmet of salvation. We get to go into battle wearing what our dad wore. The wrath of God is no longer for us. We have salvation that protects us. When the enemy wants to deal a critical strike to our heads to say that we are going to be destined forever, separated, we put on the helmet of salvation and we say, no, that attack doesn't work anymore. We put on the helmet of salvation knowing that our dad wore that into battle, that the wrath of God no longer applies to us. I'm just going to repeat myself because I want this point to be crystal clear. Our dad died on the cross. Jesus died on the cross for us. And in his will, in his good pleasure, we inherit the helmet of salvation. 
Isn't that cool? The first thing I'd like us all to know about the helmet of salvation is that it's a family heirloom. My second point, I needed to grab an army uniform to illustrate this even better. My friend let me use this army uniform of his, and uh, if you know anything about the military, just by looking at this uniform, you can learn a lot about the person who's wearing it. First things first, you can learn which branch of the military they're in. Above your heart, this is what I was taught when I was in the Army. The U.S. Army will always be on your heart. This way you're not confused with the U.S. Navy or the U.S. Air Force or whatever other military branch there is. The U.S. Army will always be on your heart. Your family name goes on this patch. It lets people know who you are, what your name is, who's your family. On one arm, there was a patch here that showed who you belonged to, who your unit was. And on the other arm, it showed who you went to war with, who you decided to deploy alongside. The helmet of salvation is very similar to a U.S. Army uniform. It shows you what kind of title God has now given us through his death. We are now offspring. We are now soldiers of God. We are now co-laborers. We are now holy, chosen, and dearly loved. Our family name, just like it is on the U.S. Army, uh, on the U.S. uniform, our family name is on our helmet. When the enemy sees us wearing the helmet of salvation, they know who we belong to. They know the collective in which we partake. They know that we are now possessions of God and that we have pledged our allegiance to him. You see, the helmet of salvation is not just a family heirloom. It helps us to know our identity. The helmet of salvation is, in part, our identity in Christ. It protects us from thinking that we have no family. It protects us from thinking that we are unworthy of love. It protects us from thinking that we belong to no one, when in fact, our identity is that we have been purchased with a heavy price, the blood of our Savior. The truth is we do have a belonging. We are no mistakes. We are not insignificant. We go to battle with the family of God, with our Father. And the enemy knows this. And the enemy is terrified. The helmet of salvation is a family heirloom. The helmet of salvation is a marker of our identity. And the helmet of salvation changes our perspective. When I was in the army, uh, we did a ton of missions at night. And when we went to Iraq, uh, sometimes at night on one of our missions, we'd find a bomb in the middle of the road. So we couldn't just leave the bomb there. We had to call it up. Protocol was call it up, and a bomb squad would come to dismantle the bomb. And in the meantime, we would need to stay near it and make sure that nobody went next to it. Because what happens if we ditch the bomb? Maybe civilians would go next to it and it would blow up. Maybe another army unit would come and it would detonate and blow up the other army unit. So we'd wait in the middle of the dark, in the middle of the desert, or sometimes the city of Baghdad or Fallujah, and we'd patrol. We'd be vigilant. We needed to be vigilant. Because check this out. What if the enemy's tactic was to put a bomb in the middle of the road and then sneak attack the U.S. soldiers knowing that they were going to stop? The reason I think the helmet was the most expensive part of the armor that we wore in the army was because attached to our helmets were night vision goggles. Super, super cool. At night, we would take our night vision goggles and put them on our eyes, and we would see through them in the dark 
and we would remain vigilant waiting for an enemy attack. We would remain vigilant looking out for the event that a sneak attack was coming. Even though we were in the dark, we were ready. Even though we couldn't see the enemy coming naturally with our own eyes, the helmet gave us an advantage in war. We are at war today. And it might not be the same kind of war that I fought in Iraq, but it is a spiritual war. It is a war where the enemy wants to sneak attack us and influence us to believe things about God or to believe things about our circumstances or to believe things about ourselves that are not true. I mean, how many times has the enemy lied to you about who God is? How many times have you thought to yourself that God is a cosmic scorekeeper and that your good things must outweigh your bad things in life, that God's very aware of the bad things you've done and you need to make up for it? That's a lie. That's a lie that definitely the enemy uses to attack our heads. Or how many times has the enemy lied to us about our situations in life? We might never recover from COVID. We might never recover from these elections. What if we viewed those events with the helmet of salvation? What if we changed our perspective on the situations that we are going through in life? And how many times has the enemy lied to influence you to, to believe that you were undesirable, that you have no purpose, or that you were a mistake. The enemy is constantly trying to sneak attack us, but we need to remain vigilant. Just like when we were in Baghdad or Fallujah or different parts of Iraq, we need to remain vigilant for a sneak attack because at any moment, the enemy could influence us to make terrible decisions. You know, not too long ago, about six years ago, my friend said something of incredible wisdom, and I don't even think he meant to say it. He said that he was three bad decisions away from ruining his life forever. And I think the best way to illustrate this is with the story of King David. In 2 Samuel, in the springtime, when kings often go off to war, King David stayed home. For whatever reason, he thought it was best to not go to war, to not strap the helmet onto his head, to not be vigilant. He thought it was a good idea. First bad decision. And then King David uh, had odd sleeping hours. The way that I know this is at night, he would walk on the top of his palace rooftop and he'd just kind of look around. And from his balcony, from the rooftop, he would see a very attractive, very naked woman bathing. And he would entertain thoughts of what it would be like to talk to her, what it would be like to meet her, what it would be like to be intimate with her. Just thinking about these things, just allowing himself to revisit the rooftop, to revisit the sights of this naked woman bathing. Bad decision number two. And then King David, with all of his authority, with all of his influence and power, arranged a meeting with this woman. This woman whose husband was off to war, this woman who was most likely vulnerable at the request of the king, he arranged a meeting. And yeah, he got intimate with her. He got intimate with a married woman, even though he himself, too, was married. Bad decision number three. And if you read 2 Samuel, you'll know that what follows is chaos. The people of Israel suffered mightily for three days. David killed someone, someone innocent, and then lied about it. His family, his lineage was torn in half. 
His offspring fought amongst themselves, and eventually the kingdom had a civil war that divided the nation forever. King David was three bad decisions away from ruining his life. And in the end, he acted on those thoughts. He acted on those uh, mental entertainment. So how do we put on the helmet of salvation so that we too can be vigilant? Well, Scripture makes it clear. We are to capture every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Instead of letting our minds wander on fantasies or hypothetical arguments that haven't happened, we instead are to dedicate our minds to God. You know, we have a propensity to distract ourselves with entertainment, to let our minds kind of just float. Oftentimes, we let our minds think about an interaction that we had five years ago, and then we just overthink that interaction until we can't sleep. Or we think about what we should have said in an argument that happened yesterday or three years ago or whatever. We let our minds just go off and float. The enemy knows this, that our brains are like mental real estate. And it's not just Satan. Corporations, media, politicians all want to occupy the mental real estate that we have. Satan knows how important it is to claim these territories, to influence our thoughts, because we are three bad decisions away from ruining our lives. Instead, we are to remain vigilant, capturing every thought. The way that we think about God, we need to capture these thoughts and remind ourselves that God is good, that God is a good father. When we have situations in our lives that we are not desiring, we need to remind ourselves that God allowed these situations. Not because he wants to test us and and make us suffer or see if we'll come out the other side stronger, but because he's aware, he's good, he knows that all things work together for the good of those who love him. And he's definitely in, in control. He's not some ignorant, lofty, far away entity. He is a compassionate father who allows things into our lives for our good. We are to capture every thought when we think about other people. It's so easy to dwell on the negative interactions or characteristics of other people. What if instead we donned the helmet of salvation, allowing it to change our perspective? What if instead we captured every thought and allowed those thoughts to God so that God could remind us that he died for other people too, that he loves them more than we do in ways that he challenges us to love them back? And what if we captured every thought about ourselves and surrendered them to God, that we gave our mental real estate over to our loving Father? How would that change the way that we live today? By allowing the helmet of salvation to change our thoughts about ourselves, how would our lives be different? How would we view ourselves differently? How would we act? Would we defend ourselves? Would we agree to do as many things as we do? Or would we trust that we have God's significance? Would we trust that we have his acceptance and his eternal security? When our heads are protected with the helmet of salvation, our perspectives are changed forever. We're going to go into a time of worship. Before we do, I just want to remind you, if you hear nothing else from today's sermon, please know that the helmet of salvation that we wear into battle is a family heirloom. It reminds us who we are and lets the enemy know who they're dealing with. And with the helmet of salvation, probably the most expensive piece 
in the spiritual arsenal that we have, it changes our perspective forever. Let's go into this time of worship dedicated to be vigilant, dedicated to surrender all thoughts, make them obedient to Christ, that our lives would be changed forever, that we would no longer be taken down by the enemy who wants to deal such critical blows. Let's worship. Church family, will you pray with me? God, thank you so much that it was in your good pleasure that we would inherit this helmet. Thank you that this helmet reminds us who we are in you. And thank you that you don't leave us unprotected against the schemes of the enemy. No, you protect our minds and our thoughts to go into battle. You remind us of the truth of who you are and who we are in you. So I pray for our church family that we would go throughout the day and go throughout the weeks coming ahead with vigilance, God. I pray that we would be vigilant to the attacks of the enemy and we'd be protected with the helmet of salvation. It's in your precious name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thank you, church family. Hope to see you soon. It was great having you with us today. We do hope that this sermon inspired you to know Christ and make him known. For more sermons and resources, please visit us at theplantchurch.org.